Welcome to All In, the Sustainable Business Podcast. Three veterans of sustainability, David Grayson, Chris Coulter, and Mark Lee, take you behind the scenes of the most innovative and exciting aspects of business today. Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of the All In Sustainable Business Podcast. I'm David Grayson, and I'm joined with my fellow podcasters, Mark. Hi, David. And Chris. Hi, David. Hi, Mark. And today, I am delighted to welcome Kate, Kate Nash, who, amongst many other claims to fame, is the founder of Purple Space and Purple Light Up. More of that in a moment. Um, Has been a great campaigner for disability rights for many years. Kate, you and I, I think, first met each other in the 1990s when we were campaigning to implement what was then called the Disability Discrimination Act in, in the UK. And I would say you are, uh, apart from being a networkologist, um, you are also what one of our previous podcast guests, um, another good friend, uh, Solitaire Townsend, calls a solutionist. And you are one of these people who I think comes up with positive practical solutions in this case to how we get many more disabled people into the workplace and not just into the workplace but succeeding and advancing in in the workplace okay let's start off with this emphasis on the color purple because your recent award-winning book positively purple building an inclusive world where people with disabilities flourish has that purple in the title as well as your organization just just elaborate why purple right start a question and let me start by saying thank you so david chris mark lovely to be here and uh, thank you for the invitation so the color purple um it was the case that some years ago we had noticed uh particularly in the world of disability employee resource groups which is the world in which I operate, that the colour purple had become increasingly synonymous with the experience of disability in work. And it was at a time when I'd my then first published, self-published book, Secrets and Big News. We'd done a a really big piece of research of two and a half thousand employees with disability. And the question we were asking, why is it so hard to get good data? when it comes to employees with disability in the workforce? And what is it that gets in the way of bringing our authentic selves to work? And what would make it easier for employers to build inclusive workplaces? So to your question, we had looked around and started to notice that the color purple was starting to become synonymous with employment. Uh, Not everywhere. I mean, we still have uh, a range of colours as part of International Day of Persons with Disability on the 3rd of December. When it came to employment, purple was starting to pop up in different parts of the world. So it's purple space. Uh, It was just before we set up. We chose to make it famous, David. And what I mean by that is we know sometimes aspects of our identity can be really hard to incorporate in our lives. And disability is one of those human experiences that many individuals will prefer not to have, even those of us like myself who are deeply politicised and see disability as a political experience, uh, much, much more than a medical one. And 
so, you know, in noticing how, how fantastically well our LGBTQ colleagues have used the rainbow flag as emblematic of both the struggle and the joy of their experiences. So too did we begin to notice the value of using colour to help people to identify with an experience. So we made it famous. The book took off Secrets and Big News. You've mentioned my second book, which I'm sure we'll tuck into. But the messages in the book and the conclusion of the book predicted that the use of colour was going to be a galvanising force to help employees around the world start to lean in, start to feel they have skin in the game, and start to be much more out and loud and proud about our experiences. And for me, it, this use of the colour purple is something which is much more positive about the whole disability story than some of the campaigning in the past. And did you consciously set out to, to try and do something rather different to a lot of the, the previous generation of campaigning? Yes, a thousand percent, David. You know that line, if you keep on doing what you keep on doing, you keep on getting what you keep on getting. And we've seen around the world the cadence of legislation. I mean, you know, back in the day when I was a campaigner wandering Whitehall and Westminster, campaigning for legislative and regulatory reform here in the UK, we were noticing our counterparts in the States and the Americans with Disabilities Act and yet we noticed that often disability is positioned as a negative experience. It's one about welfare reform. It's often about poverty. It's about struggle. It's about sadness. It's about pity. It's about disappointment. And all of those things have a truth in our lives, of course. And I'm not suggesting for one minute that the experience of disability doesn't include the experience of struggle and often hardship, but it also is a story of joy and naughtiness and sassiness and talent and potential, and those stories are not often told. So to your question, yes, both Purple Light Up, Purple Space, it was designed to be an antidote to bring something new because unless we feel jolly good about ourselves and therefore lean into the process of driving both culture and behaviour and regulatory change, then we're going to be last to the party. So, yeah, it was about celebrating the economic contribution of people around the world. I love the purple and I love making it famous, Kate. It, it makes me think, you know, it just it's an emblem, it's a flag, it's a totem, it's something that people can rally to. And as I listen to you talk about the legacy regulatory agenda versus bringing it to be something to be celebrated, is it fair to interpret it as the, the regulatory agenda was obviously necessary to enshrine rights? But, but that's a protection and that the is the ambition and the rallying towards purple and making it famous. Is that about figuring out the contribution that every person of every type can make so that it's a let's join? I'm struggling to build a bridge there, but I hope you know what I mean. Yeah, I, I totally I totally get what you mean, Mark. At, at Purple Space, we talk about the third phase of change. So we talk about the first being 
the necessity to get the legislation and the regulation right. So, you know, in the world of disability, uh, as I say, in the UK, for example, we saw the Disability Discrimination Act in 1995. David, you had a very strong role in that in terms of chairing the Disability Council. And we were modeling our legislation on the Americans with Disabilities Act. But these legislations and other uh, contemporary legislations in other jurisdictions were often 20 years after the Race Relations Act or the Sex Discrimination Act. So so we talk about the first phase, getting the legislation and the basics, the hygiene, the foundations right. The second phase phase is where employers uh, uh, both uh, attract and indeed develop for themselves the enabling tools. So the, the policy, the practice, what I call the top of the shop, the things that they need to do to make manifest that legislation. And then what we wanted to do is to really hasten the pace of the third phase. And for us, the third phase is characterised by individuals feeling that they have a role to play in terms of change. And we, if you look at any movement, it doesn't have to be a people movement. If you look at you know, climate change, you know, any, any social movement can only really pick up pace when those who are most impacted by injustice feel that they need to stand up and be counted. You know, so, you know, to crudely speaking, looking at, say, gender legislation, you know, women's rights were not secured because men deigned to give it, (laughs) but because we stood up and said enough already. And that's the same for any type of movement, including climate change. So, yeah, so to your point, the third phase is is that where we look to ourselves and we say, what do we need to do as individuals to support those that come behind us? Yeah, I think that's such a powerful part of the of connected to other movements too, Kate. And and I can you, David's educated myself. I think Mark, you've you've referenced this too of just the the uh, importance and the connectivity between disabilities and people with disabilities and the scope of the, you know, the the breadth of disabilities across the world, which is often invisible to, to many people, and how that fits with inclusion and corporate sustainability and even competitiveness. I mean, can, can you give us a little bit of an overview of, of what that looks like and why it's so important? Yeah. Okay. Let me let me give it a whirl, Chris, and 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 draw me back if I go off at a tangent. Okay. <laughs> so disability, I suppose, you know, is often seen as a human experience where the the natural reaction is is one of charity. You know, it's about something that happens in our life where the normal response is that it's abnormal, uh, that it's it's sad, it's something that's happened to us, and therefore the natural societal response to that is one of philanthropy. Yeah. So, you know, God didn't do this to to us. You know, it was, you know, it was just or other humans didn't do this to us. It was it was God. And I mean that in the broadest possible term. So to your question, that means it's taken many, 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 many years 
evidence for what was called the social model of disability, which is seeing disability really as a social construct. It's about our inability to react fast, to uh, include individuals, both in terms of healthcare or transport systems or in teams of, of employment. So it's taken a very long time. It's taken decades and decades more than any other reaction to, uh, to human talent. And now what we're seeing, I believe, is a real sea change, particularly within the employers' community. I think other sectors have got to catch up. And, you know, we, we know, you three will know more than any, how once business gets its arms around an issue, that the pace of change can often happen. So, you know, the new move, you know, back in the day, we would call it CSR. So disability, the natural corporate response, for example, was to throw a few quid at NGOs, non-government organisations, really to just go away. You know, whereas now that's not the case. And the opportunity to see disability as a profound um, opportunity to get right so that we can build sustainable businesses uh, and sustainable infrastructures uh, is, is the right thing to do. So as a stab at your question, but tell me if, if you need more. Maybe I can grab at the, the now part of your response to Chris, Kate, and and I mean it very literally as in it's mid 2020, We have come off several years of the pandemic. The pandemic moved so many people to remote work. There were celebratory stories about how that made access to the workplace easier for people with disabilities. Now people are being pushed to go back to the office. You heralded in your response the amazing ability of the private sector to move things forward once they get the bit between their teeth. Are they going to keep the bit between their teeth as this workforce transition unfolds? Oh, that's the $6 million question, Mark. You know, who the, the notion of workplace adjustment or, or accommodations is now enshrined in law. So that, that language, that construct where there's a duty of employers to make an adjustment, to make it easier for employees with disability to get uh, access to either the kit and the gizmos or flexible working in order to, to deliver their contribution. So we've had that in legislation for years. And yet, pre-pandemic, it was still the case that so many employees with disability were finding it enormously difficult to get a a routine and regular response from their employer that flexible or hybrid or remote working could be uh, a very easy adjustment or an accommodation to make. So, and then we all of us as citizens around the world, who knew it was going to take a pandemic um, of such cataclysmic uh, impact to, to prove the notion that thousands, millions of, of us can work at home and remotely and deeply successfully and sometimes better, not for everybody. And of course, we need the mix. But again, to your question, Mark, we yeah, we're deeply worried. You know, we connect with our with our uh, community. So Purple Space is a community of of 3000 disability employee resource group leaders around the world, uh, 200 plus global businesses, many multinationals like Google, like GSK, like PwC, like EY, like Meta, etc. These are great companies who have navigated many thousands of their employees through the through the pandemic. 
And we are hopeful and expectant that the majority of employers can preserve and protect and enhance some of those features because it would be a travesty if we were to throw the baby out with the bathwater and in the desire for us to build or rebuild that presenteeism culture, yeah, where, where it was about going into offices, what, to witness that we were there <laughs> rather than for, to... For, for the free coffee, Kate, I think, sometimes. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly Chris. So, you know, look, we, we are optimistic, Monies. Our default brand is optimism. We, we choose that deliberately. We're not, you know, we're not foolish to think that, that rubbish happens out there, but we choose very deliberately to be an, an optimistic brand and we believe it is it is possible to retain those features, but we are worried. You know, we are very worried, particularly when some of the nonsense policies start to come out. Yeah, about return to work, having to do four days or. So for any sustainability professional listening to this podcast, thinking about how the diversity and equity and inclusion part of the social and the economic pillars of sustainability, the S the G of ESG all fits together. There's a, a call to action, I think I'm hearing straight away there, Kate, about are you ensuring in your return to the workplace drive that you are making the adjustments, the accommodations for your disabled employees so you don't suddenly, accidentally, unintentionally reverse the progress that has been accelerated in, in recent years? Yes, a thousand percent. You know, David, we you know we know that different economies are faring better or worse around the world. But certainly, my observation in UK and parts of Europe is that there there is still a war on talent, and at a time where we have to preserve and protect uh, individuals who have now got better choices as to whether to leave the jobs market sooner. Um, we have all sampled some of the privileges and the, the beauty of being able to have hybrid lifestyles and where a lot of people have a choice now and have particularly, you know, new generations where they want to work very, very, very differently, dare I say it, to my generation. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, it's necessary uh, for businesses to think about the value of including disability as a very vibrant part of that S part of that word. Yeah. Yeah, so that we have sustainable workforces going forward. And I have to say, as someone who's working in both the disability rights space and in helping organisations to become more sustainable businesses, I do sometimes think that disability remains the Cinderella within disability and equity and inclusion, and it's not seen as part of the holistic sustainable business agenda to anywhere near the extent that if organisations really want to make progress on the S and the G of ESG and on the social and the economic parts of the sustainable development pillars, it really needs to be. But Kate, just perhaps, because you know, we just take it for granted that everyone realises that there are more than a billion people across the planet who have some form of disability that has some impact to a greater or lesser extent on 
our ability to go about daily lives and so on. And within that, some people for whom some significant adjustments are being made. But you touched on, well, I think is is an absolute no-brainer now in, in so many of our societies, which is on the one hand, there is a wealth of talent. And people are talking about skill shortages. And you and I both know in the UK, it's a ferocious debate now about do we need to have more immigrants um, to come into the country to fulfill all kinds of different jobs and so on, but that's creating great political tensions. But on the other hand, we still have a disability employment gap in the UK of almost 30 percentage points. So it does make sense for many more employers to take more positive action in our country and whole series of other countries similarly. You've been hinting at what is the 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 value proposition and what you do in purple space but just give us a little bit more of, of a description for people listening across the world who haven't perhaps come across purple space yet yeah so we um we're a leadership development and learning uh, organization so we're a b2b we're a social business a b2b business and what we choose to do as a membership um leadership organization is to build the talent, the capability, and the capacity of disability employee resource groups. So they're often called different things in different companies and different parts of the world. So sometimes they're called affinity groups, sometimes called networks, sometimes called business resource groups, sometimes called special interest groups. But nonetheless, these are entities, these are groupings of individuals um, often mostly employees with disability, but equally including our allies and our champions. Um, And they are doing two things. They're one, both supporting their businesses to go further and to go faster by being great sounding boards in terms of policy and practice and procedure and how to get a bit of slice of the competitive pie, quite rightly. You know, if you know, you're an organisation selling, for example, IT services, you've got a great network supporting you to do different and better on those products. But they're equally entities that help people to build inner confidence what we call building disability confidence from the inside out. And we know that disability is often an experience that people struggle with. It's quite lonely experience. And if you think that all disabled people, uh, around 86% of them will be individuals who acquire that disability through the course of their working lives. So anything from 16 to, well, whenever we retire, if we ever retire. Um, so that means people are, what we would call moving through their identity. They're making sense of a life experience that, let's face it, the majority of people would prefer not to have. And yet the incidence of disability increases remarkably as we get older. So your question, so what do we do? We support individuals to become great leaders. They don't have a functional role within the business. They're not from HR necessarily or DEI or uh, SDG or corporate responsibility or resourcing or product or design or comms. They could be from anywhere and they choose to lend their skill, their passion, their energy and their commitment to support their businesses to go further and to go faster. So that's what we do. We deliver really high quality leadership know-how, sometimes called soft skills. Uh, We call them human skills. How to 
notice the human resistors, in this case, disability, and encourage those who provide resistance to think differently, to think more deeply. You're a network of networks. Correct. That's why we call it networkology. Yeah, network of networks. Yeah, the world's only. I love it, networkology. And and to build on what you just said, Kate, and I think, and David, the way you prefaced how disabilities fits in, but sometimes doesn't in the whole DEI construct. Uh, we, you know, we we did we did some really interesting work with a Latin American company actually that was quite progressive in trying to understand the experience and the needs and the satisfaction of employees who are coming from different groups in the from a DEI perspective, and and the, they included disabilities, you know, which which was which was fantastic. And what was what what's which is <laughs> on one hand it's obvious, but the other hand it was amazing to the to I think us and, and the clients was that each different group had a very different experience and different expectations, different needs. And so this blanketing of, you know, this there's special groups that need attention. And we really, you have to get to that next layer down at minimum to really be responsive and create these opportunities and, and have people thrive wherever they are. And, and that specificity is really important and often missing, I think. Yeah, great call, Chris. And of course, you know, disability is complex. You know, it includes many different people. It includes people who, like myself, have been disabled since teenage years. In my case, Stills disease or rheumatoid or what's called chronic arthritis. But it also includes people who experience mental ill health, people who are cancer survivors, people who are neurodivergent, uh, individuals who may be deaf and hard of hearing or have a visual impairment. So these experiences, while seemingly very different, and of course they manifest themselves very differently in the workplace, what I need as a mobility impaired a woman is altogether different from somebody who may be neurodivergent. But you dig a little deeper and our truths are exactly the same. It's about how do you navigate the stuff of others, as I often call it, the soft bigotry of low expectation, which comes can sometimes have as much, if not more of an impact about how you feel yourself. It can have a much more deleterious impact about your 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 feelings of expectations or hope or success. So so yes, I digress, Chris. But yes, you're absolutely right. It's complex, and when you do come across those companies who are deeply prepared to put the disability within DEI, because we're often last on the list, um, the magic really really happens. Thoughts striking me, Kate. One where you just almost ended up on the, the the bigotry of low expectations. You talked previously about building confidence in disability or, or disability confidence, and I, I wondered how much that related to the individual and how much that related to the organization. Um, and at least in terms of overcoming the bigotry, probably more about the individual. But what role does building the confidence of the institution play? And then quite separate one, but I'll throw them both at you. You know, David threw out the crazy statistic, right? A billion people uh, are living with a disability of some kind. And you tied that to the, that's an evolutionary number over time through people's lives. And that for most folks, it's acquired somewhere in working years, which means it's inherently related to aging, which is another area of discrimination. And I think probably a lot of people don't even put the two fully together that that's that whatever it is has now happened to me because I'm getting older rather than I'm now a member of another community. So I'd love you to go any direction you want with those things that are striking me. 
I love them all, Mark. Great, great prompts. So, I mean, in terms of the disability confidence piece first, um, it's a language which we really enjoy at Purple Space. So the notion of disability confidence was a, a form of words that was invented by an incredible woman, Susan Scott Parker, when she first set up Disability, uh, Business Disability Forum here in the UK. And, and BDF, as it's called in the UK, there are equivalents around the world. You have Disability In uh, over in the States, Australian Network on Disability, uh, Cadaroon in the Middle East. You know, there are many forums of employers that are to improve policy and practice procedure. And many of them, it's not universal, but many of them will use criterion under which an organisation could be seen to be disability confident. So it's not just motherhood and apple pie, but there are real concrete criterion under which an organisation can say that we, we're meeting best practice. And, and sorry, just to cut across you, Kate, for one moment. Yeah. Susan, Susan Scott Parker, who inspired all this and is a brilliant campaigner as well. Um, Chris Mark, um, as Canadians, you'll be de- delighted to know she is also Canadian too and, 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 and is somebody who has done so much for the disability inclusion world. Sorry, I didn't mean to. Uh, I'm just going to add a little maple syrup to my coffee, David. That's awesome. So. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> but no, good call, David. She's an extraordinary woman um, and now works as an advisor at uh, the UN, the ILO, uh, particularly the, the Global Business Disability Network. So she has popularised this notion of disability confidence at an organisational level, as you as you called out, Mark. What we choose to do at Purple Space is something altogether different. So we allow the great organisations like BDF and Cadaroon, Disability in Australian Network, Enable India, there are many around to do their great work, which is around improving that policy and practice. And what we do is build inner confidence from the inside out at a personal level and at an ERG level. And just the last two to three years, we've done a big piece of work to understand what the construct is of inner confidence. So we looked eventually to Harvard University and we use um, liberally that wonderful definition of confidence, which is a strong expectation of a positive outcome. So what that's saying is confidence is not just a fact or a feeling or an act. It's not just something that you have or you don't have, but expectation is... Uh, is a muscle. It's an activation muscle. And if you deliberately choose to deploy, deploy this activation muscle called expectation, you actually create the circumstances by other parties have to almost align what they next do. So it's not arrogance. It's not a feeling of entitlement. But the more we can support employees with disability, understand that they are backed by legislation and therefore ought to feel expectant that their organisation wants to do well by them, that can can support people, I think, particularly in periods of huge challenge. So that's what we choose to do. We're going to, we're on a mission to create a global definition of inner confidence in the same way, at an individual level, in the same way as the amazing Susan Scott Parker did at an organisational level. Now, Kate, you and I have been on this journey for a very, very long time. And 
it sounds like you're sensing that we are now at something of a, a tipping point because we have lots of these national organizations. The ILO is encouraging more countries to create something similar to Business Disability Forum and, and, and the equivalents. And of course, you have the amazing social entrepreneur, Caroline Casey, with the Valuable 500, backed by our, our good friend and colleague, Paul Pullman, um, who got the Valuable 500 onto the World Economic Forum agenda in, in Davos. And Caroline set out and has achieved a network of, of 500 international companies committed to make disability a board room agenda item and each company committed to champion at least one aspect apple for example championing inclusive design and so on so we now we now have more of this movement are you are you sensing that this could in the next few years be something of a, of a real tipping point that we've got to to make the most of Hugely, David. You know, I think one of the the joys of getting older is that one can look back and and see very real and tangible evidence of change. And you know, my wonder. I I call Caroline a sister by another mother. You know, her very genius idea, simply to get disability on the board agenda, was an amazing move. And what we're seeing universally is uh, the ability for, for companies to think deeply about what their mega moves are going to be vis-a-vis -vis disability. Sometimes that's an employment level, sometimes that is customer or service level. Um, but across the board, we're seeing more appetite, more energy, real action, uh, concrete impact. We see that in terms of representation. We see that in terms of access to goods and services. And, you know, I'm, yeah. Yes, there's still a huge amount to do, but but to your question, yeah, there is a real tipping point, and one can only be energized and, yeah, delighted. I mean, that's extraordinary. I love the way you said that, Kate. The the value of having a little bit of longevity is to see that the change and be and um, be feel optim optimism from that. But what, what about in the? I mean, the global south and disability. I, I wonder what the state of play is, and I suspect it's different. And what, what's your sense of of where we're at on, on progress there? Um, it, it absolutely is different, Chris. So, yeah, I'm in danger of painting a rosy picture. No, there, there are pockets of the world where it is a completely different picture. Um, talking to some of our uh, South African colleagues, for example, just recently, where uh, there are a number of great companies. I have to call one out. I think Anglo-American is, a, is, a, is an amazing organisation that uh, has done much to recruit young disabled talent uh, in different parts of the world, particularly in Africa. And uh, But it's not always the case that employers will automatically use, for example, the vehicle of employer resource groups, what we call learning directly from your own people, in order to, uh, to build better policy and practice. So there is a huge amount still to be done. Um, I'm... I'm I'm hopeful that some of the best practice you see coming out of Purple Space and other membership organisations will have 
a galvanizing effect on others. Uh, the, the challenge for us, you know, we, we do, you know, we can't pretend to be anything than what we are, which is a B2B, often at large global business level, which means the small, medium-sized organizations, you know, they we we can't touch, we we can't can't touch. We're just too we're just too small to be able to make a real impact. So yeah, lots more to be done, but I'm hopeful that some of the best practices that we're seeing some of the large global businesses will make it easier for smaller suppliers and the supply chain and the procurement chain to help others. And I guess as as organisations like uh, CSR Europe, for instance, are saying to their leading member companies, part of your leadership in the broader sustainability space is about developing the capacity of your sector. And that includes developing the capacity of relevant sector trade associations to be able to support the mass of smaller businesses on their sustainability journey in which disability as an integral part of diversity and equity inclusion is a fundamental part. That's part of the way that the expertise of the Business Disability Forum and Purple Space and Valuable 500 and so many others can get distributed and disseminated to that much, much broader audience of of smaller businesses, as well as the big global companies. Yeah, big time, David. You know, taking that at a micro level. So to other organisations, I feel compelled to call out because of their imaginative approach to learning directly from their own people. So IBM, for example, have 15 different chapters in different parts of the world. So, you know, many of our members will have different chapters that they're setting up. Uh, Google have, for example, 22 chapters in different parts of the world. And the reason I, I bring this into the fold in terms of your interjection there is what happens is these ERG leaders in different parts of the world look up and notice what each are doing. You know, they share best practice and they become, you know, agitators for change. They become beautiful, angelic agitators um, for change. And that cross-fertilization of ideas across the globe just, uh, you know, provides... I suppose, concrete evidence about how you can actually get things done and what policies need to look like and feel like to build inclusive and better working worlds. We're almost out of time, Kate, but I would be really interested. You are such a passionate and effective champion of the value of employee-led networks, in this case particularly for people with disabilities in work, helping them to get into work, but crucially also to go up through the the organisation and hopefully reach the C-suite and in due course, corporate boards and so on. Any thoughts about what we are starting to see in a few organisations around the world, which is either employees themselves or sustainability function, encourage the creation of networks of employees who want to learn together more about sustainability. Any thoughts about what are the key things you've learned over the years in nurturing and helping employee-led networks for people with disabilities that might be relevant to anyone listening who's thinking about, gosh, part of our three-year plans for embedding sustainability is an employee-led sustainability network? Ah. 
I would be delighted to see the creation of employee-led movements on the sustainability agenda. I think it would bring nothing but pace of change. Um, so, you know, now our observation is the some of the reasons why we're seeing such real change, concrete change, a quantifiable impact, um, more disabled people in work, better policy, improved services. The reason why we're seeing that is because organisations have an organised cluster of individuals who are lending their might, their passion and their muscle to get things done. So my advice would be if that lights your fire, why not? All you have to do is to ask, what's the worst that could happen? <laughs> it would be a no. But I, given that employee resource groups, I think, are here to stay, I would be, um, I would be surprised if SDG personnel, CEOs, would not respond favourably to clusters of individuals who want to change the world from the inside out by noticing the impact that their own organisation has on this world. So, yeah, advice would be do it if you're interested, if you're a volunteer, got passion and energy and you want to, you know, do more than just the day job. You know, one's income via wages matter. They pay the mortgage, etc. But there is more to life than just that. So, yeah. Go for it. That's what I would say. I do think some of the people who are creating, whether it's a network for disabled employees or for employees who are really interested in learning together more about sustainability or one of the other um, ethnic or, or, or diversity groupings, I think many of, of, of those individuals championing them are effectively social entrepreneurs. So there's another whole wealth of knowledge that people like Megan Dupree from the League of Entrepreneurs and others have been building up that we need to tap into and join. I think you talked about as as we get a few more years on on, on the clock, you know, so what are the, the sort of things that we maybe bring still to the table? I think one of those for me is is being able to see and encourage some of those connections that maybe aren't yet being made. Mark? Yeah, maybe from your years on the clock to the years ahead, David. And and Kate, early in the conversation, you talked about the three phases that we've been through so far. And so legislation, employer-related, employee-related, and just thinking, you know, what comes next? Is there a clear fourth phase that is beginning to gel in your head and that you anticipate unfolding? What What should we be looking for? How can people support it? Where is it gathering its early momentum? Oh, great question. And you've caught me short. I would say that the third phase has to develop and mature before we see some of the impacts uh, realise over time. What do I mean by that? Um, gender networks are ahead of the game, nearly 20 years more ahead of the game than the disability piece. Uh, and it's only now that we're starting to see real attention on, say, for example, the gender pay gap. So although there are organisations who talk about the disability pay gap and the data gap, for example, we have a long way to go before we can safely say hand on heart that disability is seen as equitable as other aspects of human identity. So to, to your question, I feel like the third phase 
you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a woman who hit 60 last month. Uh, I'm a woman who experienced disability at the age of 15. And I'm a woman who's chosen to spend her career in both parliament with parliamentarians to reform legislation and then with employers to make manifest that legislation. So as I look forward, maybe I'm just too old to look forward enough, Mark, but as I look forward, I feel that the third phase has to mature before we start to see. But what, you know, coming back to SDG and my excitement about the SDG movement is that disability uh, can be seen as just an aspect of a human dimension. It's never going to go away. You know, it's a very big club. I've never been a fan of suggesting that the majority of us one day will join it. I just don't think that's a very attractive proposition. You know, some people use that as a campaign tone. I don't because I just don't find it attractive. But that's the reality. And I think, yeah, as we age, we'll, we'll, we will notice more about how it will impact ourselves. So um, I think that was a rubbish answer, Mark, but I hope you forgive me. <laughs> uh, I, don't, I don't think so. David and Chris and I have talked considerably about how the wider, if you will, corporate sustainability field goes through these periods of acceleration and then necessary plateaus when, when the embedding happens. And if where we are is phase three right now is in this deep embedding stage, that makes perfect sense to me. And we'll see the next curve develop off the back of that. Can, can I ask a question, Kate, just back to the purple conversation that where we began the conversation too. And, and I, I wonder, it probably isn't, but just I, I, the notion of purple and the color purple reminds me of Alice Walker's beautiful book of three young girls in, in um, Southern Georgia during times of slavery and, and how that, is there any sort of connective tissue whatsoever with purple and the color purple in that book? Was that inspiring at all? Or is there any part of that? Oh, it's a beautiful book. And there are many books and works of literature that use the color purple, purple hibiscus, color purple, there are many. And of course, the color purple is also synonymous with the women's movement. So we, I always say almost the color is irrelevant. <laughs> it could have been yellow or green. <laughs> right. And the good use and the judicious use, the wise use of color to um, you know, create an emblem for a movement and a struggle is often to support individuals who don't naturally run to an aspect of human identity to not have to use words or semantics that don't feel right for them you know I'm very comfortable using the word disability I see it as a political experience much more than a definition of my arthritis but you know I've been around the block a little bit and um, and for individuals who really struggle and I think particularly for those who have new diagnosis of disability when life is derailed and you can't see the future and you have such uncertainty about how you can live how you can work, whether you can retain your economic value, how you're going to feed and water your family, etc. It brings such such struggle and therefore people will shy away from using that language of disability. So it just happens to be purple, could have been any other colour, but it's a fantastic, I think, emblem for galvanising and bringing together individuals with lots of different experiences to see where the thread is of, of our experience. This has been an absolute joy for listeners who want to understand more about your own journey and how you have, have progressed uh, through a whole series of different jobs from mum's hope expressed in a loving way, as you say in the book, but nevertheless, a real provocation to you that your mum telling you after you 
um, develop the the rheumatoid arthritis that maybe one day you could get a little job. You have done so many big jobs, and I hope you're going to continue to do even bigger jobs as we go forward. You talk in, in the book about being pathologically positive, and I think that's come across superbly in this conversation. For listeners who want to, to know more, we'll post uh, the links to Purple Space and to Purple Light Up, because that's something very concrete that organisations across the world can do on December the 3rd each year to help to emphasise the economic contribution that those of us with disabilities make and the way in which organisations can demonstrate their commitment to improving opportunities for employees with disabilities. Uh, But for now, Kate, thank you enormously. Have a great summer. Thank you so much, Kate. David, Chris, Mark, joy to meet you. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the All In Podcast. If so, don't forget to subscribe so you won't miss any future episodes. And why not also give us a five-star review on iTunes? It helps others to find us, which helps spread the message.